final thoughts. The media is the minefield. I would rather be a leper than talk to the media. Mother Teresa. Of all 1,601 candidates in the Canadian election of 2008, I should have been the most prepared for a media storm. Before I ran for a seat in Parliament, I had worked in radio, newspapers, magazines, and television, and possessed of an entrepreneurial spirit and a will to turn my freelance income into a living wage, I had become an enthusiastic coach in the fine art of media relations. I was also a passionate advocate for media literacy education and the reform of corporate media. As I used to joke with my media skills clients, think of me as the former thief who is now teaching security. Much of my strength was that after a long career at the Canadian Broadcasting Corporation, I was self-employed. I could be totally candid with clients about the inner workings of the media because nobody could fire me. I was, in fact, a media lifer. I understood how things worked. For example, when Senator Sharon Carstairs told me that my media colleagues would love me as a political candidate, just look at the encouragement they heaped on Peter Kent, I knew she was out to lunch. The media loved Peter Kent. Indeed, he was authentic. He had corporate cred. He was one of the boys spelled with a Z. Powerhouse publisher David Asper had appeared with him at his Thornhill nomination meeting. I was a woman from the wilderness, and worse, left-leaning. <laughs> I knew I was on my own. I loved coaching the media wounded, usually people from a marginalized group seeking fair media access. Women, minorities, the working poor, the disabled— they were often people who had little money, were second-class consumers, and therefore of little interest to those who really run the media business, advertisers. My goal was to show my students how to make the media a more friendly place for the messages they wanted to get out there. I also worked with doctors, social workers, community organizers, church people, activists, and I counted Manitoba Liberal members of Parliament Anita Neville, Ray Simard, and Tina Keeper among my trainees. A peculiar requirement of my coaching sessions was that students be comfortably dressed. And that's because we began with the request that they break into groups and form a human sculpture. That sculpture would express their views about the media. They almost always created some form of wild beast, a multi-headed dragon-like creature, usually with one of the actors hiding under a table or behind a chair. They unfailingly apologized to me for this unflattering tableau, but I saw it so often that I came to expect it. No, 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 I would say to them, I assure you, you are too kind. It's much worse than what you have created here. 
Now, this was intended to break the ice with a laugh, but there was also some truth in that. When guiding other people through their media minefields, I could share stories I hoped would empower them to speak up. I often referred to my experience after a live radio interview on CBC St. John's Morning Show. My guest was the editor of Le Figaro, a prestigious French newspaper. He was a commanding presence, intimidating not just in his reputation, but in his manner. Inexperienced then, I had asked my questions with bated breath, fearful of contradiction. After our interview, the Great One leaned over and whispered, Did I do all right? Hiding a wide inner smile, I nodded that he did. Don't worry, I told my students. Even the mighty can be spooked by a microphone. During a visit to Winnipeg in 1982, Mother Teresa had given brief interviews. She was a tiny, wizened woman with a startling baritone voice. But even Mother Teresa's divine connections couldn't protect her from unpredictable media results. When I returned to my radio studio to pick up the recording of our interview, my technician, busy listening to a baseball game, confessed he had accidentally erased it. Erased Mother Teresa? No need to scold. He was a devout Christian, and the look on his pale face told me he thought he was going to hell for his blunder. I had learned a lot about the challenges media can present to anyone from observing the late, formidable Joyce Milgard. I had covered Joyce's 23-year-long struggle to free her son David from his murder conviction from the start, and I had become an admirer of Joyce's indomitable spirit. She faced at least two deadly problems in getting me the attention to the question of David's innocence. First, she was the mother of the perp, and her judgment of her son's capacity for murder was naturally suspect. Second, she was a follower of Christian science, and religion can't get no respect from most media people, except on the faith page. The faith page is often a place where journalists are sent to be punished. Despite the formidable obstacles between Joyce and an initially hostile media, she became a superb media strategist. Her method was simple. She knew every name in media and made sure every journalist she came into contact with got an exclusive bit of the story as it unfolded. I'm certain she had a chart somewhere, and checked off each of us as our turn for a news flash came up. One morning, Joyce called, inviting me to attend a vigil at Stony Mountain Penitentiary, just north of Winnipeg. This was a recurring invitation, and this time I couldn't make it. A few minutes later, cursing myself for taking the time from the story in front of me, I called her back. 
Joyce, I said, don't hold your vigil at the pen tomorrow. Take your people to the Sheraton Hotel. Mulrooney's in town to announce a federal giveaway. Approach him directly. If he talks to you, the media has a story. If he doesn't talk to you, it's still a story. Go for it. And then I forgot about it. Two days later, I opened the Saturday edition of the Globe and Mail to find that Joyce had made the coveted above-the-fold space on the front page. All of it. There she was, face-to-face with a rapt Mulroney, the two of them eye-to-eye, surrounded by a halo of candles and the news that the PM was promising to do something in the case. I was beside myself with a mix of elation and fury. I was thrilled for Joyce, but I was furious that I'd given Brian Mulroney a photo op in which he looked angelic. The Prime Minister had learned well from the mistakes of his Justice Minister, Kim Campbell. She had been filmed turning her back on Joyce in the halls of Parliament. That meeting with then-Prime Minister Mulroney would indeed be a turning point for Joyce, and it didn't cost her a dime. It was a direct result of the respect and empathy that she inspired in just one journalist. But it took years of patience to get results. It's easy to forget that the very definition of the free press in Canada comes from the corporate sector. Free means privately owned and at its best beyond the meddling of government. Freedom belongs to whoever owns the press. And staying in the good graces of the master gets more and more important as the number of masters shrink and their media real estate expands. The freedom of media owners provides that minefield for media workers. For example, a Winnipeg freelance photojournalist tells this story of her adventures while attempting to work with the media magnate Conrad Black. When Black's National Post first appeared, it offered the lavish beauty of high-end British newspapers. The photos could be stunning. And Rosie Goodman, who had bravely shot in some of the world's toughest locations, wanted to string for the post. She was warmly greeted and prepped as to the terms and the necessary equipment. This added up to a lot of money. But Rosie agreed to buy expensive phones and lenses and to be available at a moment's notice. Then she waited. And waited. Three months. No assignment. Not a scrap. One day over lunch at a popular press hangout, Rosie was complaining, as anyone might, about this situation. The next day, she got a disturbing phone call from someone who declined to identify himself. Mr. Black, the cultured voice told her, is a very litigious man. Yesterday, you were overheard talking about him in unflattering terms. Mr. Black does not appreciate this. If it happens again, you will hear from his legal representative. Rosie anguished over her mystery call, though more quietly than before. More time passed, and it was clear she had misspoke herself. Her relationship with the Post was 
over. She was left alone with her bills. For Canadian journalists, the scarcity of job security, along with the possibility of working with integrity, are ongoing issues. Perhaps the worst media influence on our intellectual and emotional environment is simple conformity of thought. As the late and beloved Canadian journalist June Colwood once told me, coloring outside the lines is a thankless task. Painting by numbers, on the other hand, is richly rewarded. When massive scandals actually break, it's often the work not of journalists but of whistleblowers, of whom there is a dire shortage and with good reason. Consider the visit of Dr. Jeffrey Wigand to speak in Toronto in 2002. Wigand is the renegade chemist formerly of U.S. tobacco company Brown & Williamson. At great personal cost, Wigand testified that tobacco executives knew and boosted the addictive power of nicotine in their cigarettes. His privacy, his family, and his reputation as a scientist were badly abused by biased corporate media. Then, something like Humpty Dumpty, a few individual journalists, Lowell Bergman among them, put his life back together again. His story inspired international attention after filmmaker Michael Mann brought it to the big screen in 1999. That was the film The Insider, featuring actor Russell Crowe as Wigand. The day after Wigand's speech in Toronto, the National Post reported that the chemist got a standing ovation before he even opened his mouth. The gist of their report was, What's the matter with these people in Toronto? Don't they know a rat fink when they see one? Movies like The Insider, Fiction, and Journalism School encourage journalists to do heroic things, but their bosses, publishers, and editors frequently impose dramatically lower standards. Probably no case illustrates the dictum better that in journalism no good reporter goes unpunished better than the story of Winnipeg Free Press columnist Gordon Sinclair and Manitoba Native leader J.J. Harper. Harper was shot and killed by Winnipeg police in a scuffle in the city's core area in the bitter March of 1988. Things were following the normal course of events, a quick investigation, innocent police, when Sinclair stopped the story in its tracks. Sinclair read that a reporter from the Winnipeg Sun had visited the shooting scene and stumbled on what turned out to be Harper's broken, blood-spattered glasses. They were very near where Harper had fallen. Gordon wondered what else the police had missed at the crime scene, and he returned to it himself two days after the killing. He knocked on half a dozen neighborhood doors with two questions. Had they seen anything? No. Had the police asked them if they had seen anything? No. And with that, a far-reaching police cover-up was uncovered. A series of investigative columns followed, winning Sinclair a National Newspaper Award and the Manitoba Human Rights Journalism Award. 
he stayed on the police for the next five years, years marred by not too subtle mistreatment at the paper and by equally unsubtle police harassment. Ultimately, the free press cancelled his popular column and demoted him to assigned reporting. Sinclair fought it by filing a grievance, and one year later, management was compelled to reinstate him as columnist. Gordon Sinclair's courageous columns on the J.J. Harper shooting sparked Manitoba's Aboriginal Justice Inquiry, which investigated the broken relationship between the Indigenous population of Manitoba and the justice system. Its final report was published in 1991. Sinclair's work is what comes to mind when speaking of comforting the afflicted and afflicting the comfortable. He told his own story in his book, Cowboys and Indians, The Shooting of J.J. Harper, also 1999. Like Sinclair and many of my colleagues, I survived in this conflicted media culture, painfully conscious of its inadequacy, pointing them out and challenging them when it seemed possible. And then, as a candidate for Parliament and the object of a smear campaign in 2008, I tripped on the flaws and shortcomings of my profession. In spite of carrying decades of journalistic lessons with me into the election of 2008, my entry into the political arena was a sucker punch followed by a pratfall. The only possible redemption I could see was to apply journalistic values to these events. Tell the damn story. Well, I've told the damn story. Thank you for listening. Mm-hmm.